Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Jeremy Carl. I'm Batia Unger Sargon. And this is Not Con- NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, obviously, uh, there really is only one thing in the news this week, um, and, and that is is the horrific attack on Israel by Hamas uh, and, and the... Mm-hmm terrible stories that are coming out there and then the inevitable way in which this is this attack is going to change not only the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Middle East, uh, but America, the West and the world. Um, so we, we've tried to to split this up into four segments, but they're all going to be on the same thing or different aspects of it. Um, first, we're going to go to Ben um, and he's going to lay out the basics and the nature of the conflict as it stands now. Uh, I'm going to talk about the discussion about what the Israeli response is likely to be, what it ought to be. Um, then we're going to go to Jeremy, and he's going to talk about implications for the United States, what the, what we in the United States uh, should be doing about this or should not be doing about this. We're going to have a discussion there. Um, and then finally, we're going to take it to Batya, and we're going to talk about uh, the context, the call for quote-unquote context, the response from uh, certain media outlets or American universities um, or, or the left more broadly, uh, and, and, and talk about what that means uh, for domestic politics, but also what that means for uh, the way that, that fault lines are drawn in the political world going forward. So uh, with that, let me turn it back over over to Ben to kick us off. Uh, so as ever, as the world knows at this point, Iran backed Hamas engaged in a Nazi-esque genocidal jihadist effort uh, over the past weekend and extending into this week, killing 1,300 plus people, including among them Americans, 27 Americans, I believe is the number at this point, taking hostage 100 to 150 plus individuals, including among them, I believe 14 Americans at this point. The nature of the savagery is incomparable in modern history. Unlike the Nazis, Hamas sought to circulate the images, the indescribable images on social media. Um, And by the way, my personal view and something we could probably talk about is whether those images should be shown and ought to be shown from my perspective. I think the world ought to see the savagery and the barbarism that exists uh, beyond the horrific stories of uh, massacring villages, the beheadings of babies, uh, the taking hostage of, among others, a Holocaust survivor, survivor among the cruelest of the stories. Uh, we saw essentially in one day an intifada that killed the equivalent in U.S. population terms of tens of thousands of people. So there's any number of things that can and will be said about what happened before I kind of go into the geopolitical dimensions of this and some of the backdrop to it. Uh, It's worth noting, first of all, that I I think I speak for all of us here that uh, our prayers are with all those involved with this program and this entire NatCon initiative involved, including uh, the Hazoni family and uh, one of our uh, producers, Eliasaf, and everyone else in, in directly and indirectly involved in sort of the NatCon family more broadly. Um, we can talk about a lot of different dimensions of this. Um, you know, briefly, we could talk about the history of Gaza itself. Gaza was a a piece of land that was taken by Israel in a defensive effort in 1967 after Israel was attacked from multiple sides. Um, Israel uh, had settled in a number of communities there, uh, Israeli citizens over time, but decided to unilaterally pull out in 2005. Hamas took over in the Gaza Strip in 2006. Hamas, by its very covenant or charter, has been dedicated to Israel's destruction from the very beginning, and uh, its genocidal Jew hatred is intrinsic to it and is engaged in savagery before. This was on another level um, and shocked the psyche of, I think, Israelis, of those in the West more broadly, and probably even surprised uh, jihadist forces themselves, um, the level of uh, success from their vantage point. Um, Now, in the immediate term, there are likely to be hostage-related crises with Hamas using 
uh, Israeli prisoners and Americans as human shields, including taking them down into their terror tunnels, uh, which creates very difficult decision. Are you going to trade for hostages, which Israel has done in the past at massive cost, including you know, over a thousand uh, Arab Palestinian prisoners, potential, and in some cases, actual jihadists for Gilad Shalit in the past. Uh, the scope and scale of the number of hostages on this time is in a completely different level. Uh, and then otherwise, to the extent you have incursions and you try to exfiltrate the hostages, of course, there are going to be booby traps and all sorts of ways in which Israel is going to suffer substantial casualties and many of the hostages are unlikely to survive. Qatar, to start getting into the geopolitical dimensions, uh, is the home of Hamas's leadership and is trying to serve as a go-between uh, between the jihadists and Israel in connection with any such crisis. You have a million people being told to leave Gaza, but Egypt is not opening the crossing out. Something very telling in all of this, none of the Arab countries in the region seem to be willing to take in the Gazans, which I think speaks volumes about the situation at hand. And you don't see the world screaming out, crying out, why aren't you taking in refugees for resettlement? Worth noting, more broadly than the kind of immediate term, this obviously has the potential to turn into a multi-front, not just massive regional war, but potentially a global war because Iran's proxies, not just Hamas, are operating obviously via Hezbollah in Lebanon, in Syria, uh, including a number of other quote-unquote Iranian-backed militias, proxies. That extends, of course, also to Iraq, Yemen, and beyond, and then to Tehran itself. Um, so there's a question of, is Israel solely going to focus on eviscerating Hamas, as seems to be the case, or is it potentially going to have to strike in some of these other fronts to deter a much greater battle? Will those fronts open up and force Israel's hand? Of course, Iran itself is a proxy to some extent as a strategic partner of China and Russia. Russia has usually kind of like the Qataris played both sides in this region. They have on the one hand been an ally of Iran, but on the other hand have allowed Israel to engage in strategic bombing where necessary, for example, in Syria. So this becomes a very complex situation very quickly, one that could easily spiral out of control. The point I'll make, and obviously we're going to delve into these issues in specific uh, segments, but the points I'll make up top are, one, in my view, I believe that for Israel to defend its national interest and that national interest will redound to the benefit of the rest of the Western world, <clears throat> including to the U.S., to the extent it's vigorously pursued. I believe that Israel has to strike in a dramatic, quick fashion and decisive fashion that sends a signal that it will not be deterred in defending its national interest and that it will deter full-scale assaults from almost all sides, essentially, in this. And absent that decisive and crippling blow, if this is a long, drawn-out and grisly ground war solely focused on Gaza and the elimination of Hamas originally, uh, kind of counterintuitively, that may lead to much greater bloodshed down the road. So we'll talk about kind of Israel's plans. We'll talk about what we in the U.S. ought to be doing, how our national interests ought to be served. And it's worth noting, I think also at the top, how little focus has really been placed on the fact Americans were killed and Iran has been killing and taking hostage Americans since the bloody revolution took place, starting with obviously the hostage crisis in 1979, extending to the uh, blowing up the U.S. embassy in Beirut, the uh, Beirut Lebanon barrack bombings as well, the Kobar Tower bombings, hundreds of American troops killed by Iranian-made IEDs over the last 20 years and beyond, including potential strikes on our own soil. So there's a long war that Iran has been engaged in and its proxies have been engaged in against the West. This is a manifestation of it in Israel. Israel is the little Satan, we're the great Satan. Uh, and a catastrophic blow has been struck. But this is this was the opening salvo and what could potentially become a much greater war again, in my view, to the extent Israel does not respond resolutely and decisively and in dramatic fashion. Yeah, um, you know that's a. Th thank you for the the overview, Ben. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you on some points, and I, I think I maybe would differ from you on on some points. But uh, you know, as far as what the Israelis do in response, 
Um, I think that that ultimately that's their strategic calculation as an independent nation. And um, I think from an, our interest perspective, which I'll get into more later, uh, I think the the key thing is that they not be seen as the proximity. Uh, you know, we're not kind of seen as the hidden hand behind whatever Israel does. Israel has to do what it's going to do, and we have to do what's in our interests. Um, those interests uh, have some overlap, but they're not the same. Um, I'm certainly in agreement with you about the barbarity of the attacks. And, uh, um, you know, I think, you know, beyond that, there's just you know not, not much to be said. Uh, the fact that those barbarity of attacks was uh, excused in the way that it was uh, by many folks, uh, even in the West, is um, concerning, um, but uh, to say the least, uh, and, and sort of speaks to some some uh, broader issues that I'll get into during my segment. I've been thinking a lot about um, how wrong Hamas was in what it, its expectations of how this was going to unfold. Um, it, it seems to me that they fundamentally misunderstood um, what the world's reaction was going to be to this in a way that I I think I may have also not ex- I did not expect the response that I'm seeing, which is just complete and utter widespread condemnation, not just for the brutality, but for anybody who cannot um, unequivocally condemn it. Um, the there's the bipartisan the partisan divide over Israel seems to me to be gone. Uh, President Biden has been utterly stalwart in Israel's defense and the extremist voices in his party, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have been totally sidelined. Um, the disgust for them is so all-encompassing. Of course, you have these very ugly um, uh, apologias for Hamas all over Twitter, but they are so not representative. And so much of the left has come out in support of Israel in a way that truly shocked me. And it seems to me also shocked, may have shocked Hamas. And um so I'm I'm asking myself a lot, like what was the failure here? This this clearly was a huge, huge miscalculation. I mean, just beyond you know the 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 atrocities, um, which obviously have you know moral implications. But I think even in terms of you know thinking about the Palestinian cause, I mean, this was just a huge, huge tactical error. So of course signals, you know, the larger geopolitical context that Ben, you laid out so beautifully, this question of, you know, this is not, this was not obviously just Hamas versus Israel. This was Iran versus the West, Iran versus the U.S. Um, although I, I I also think that keeping the conflict as limited as possible, and I guess I disagree with you a bit here, Ben, um, is, is, is the move. Um, um, because, um, you know, as somebody who's still a lefty, I, I'm anti-war, but also because I think that um, the Iran could not have done this without Hamas and they need their proxies, right? They need their um, foot soldiers to carry out these attacks. Um, and so it, it, to me, the move is to support Israel and it's um, to make it as successful as possible in eradicating its neighbor and enemy um, and rescuing the what innocent Palestinian civilians there are from the the reign of of Hamas, the reign of terror that Hamas has inflicted on its own people as well. And then perhaps having some kind of Belfast moment here moving forward for the region. Well, uh, let me just jump in and, um, you know, first, I just want to echo, I uh, totally agree on uh, Jeremy's part of things. Like, I I fully believe that this is about Israel defending itself. And the more that is that the U.S. is engaged in certain specific ways, I think it will actually be about restraining Israel and de facto serving the interests of the very groups that this administration and the, the, the Obama-Biden administration before it tried to make ascendant and the strong course in the region. I was also remiss in noting that I do think there is merit to the conventional wisdom of this was in part about scuttling uh, Iran, uh, Israel, Saudi normalization, uh, however we want to define that, and probably the broader kind of reordering of the region of Sunni Arab powers and Israel. Uh, But I do think it goes beyond that as well. And let me just note, I am not advocating, and it's not my place to advocate, I'm not advocating for Israel to open a multi-front war or to strike anywhere uh, beyond Gaza at this point. I'm just saying that as a practical matter, 
I think that move may ultimately prove to save more lives than taking this kind of one adversary at a time. But as a practical matter, that may not be even possible, uh, let alone necessarily desirable. But with that, uh, Inez is back with us. I'll turn it over to Inez. Yeah, sorry about the technical difficulties, folks. Um, so in terms of framing this conflict, uh, before we get to the implications, and I know we've all been bleeding into the implications because and, and the response because it's unavoidable, um, to be honest, my first thought beyond the, the obvious humanitarian um, response, the obvious human response to these kinds of atrocities against, you know, against children, against babies, against women, you know, this looks a lot. My response was this: this is actually much what it looked like uh, for for settlers on the frontier in America. Erica to be raided by Comanche. And it's interesting to me that when I make that that comparison, the first thing that people start arguing about is who came here first, right? As though that's the main point of the comparison, when in fact, I'm making a comparison about two different levels of civilization and two different ways of organizing human beings into, into societies um, that are incompatible, uh, incompatible in the short term, probably incompatible in the long term. Um, and, and it really... Uh, becomes difficult to think about how what what you know constitutes a response or even a, a like theoretical solution going forward um when you have that level of mismatch between uh, the the um the very sort of core organizational um commitments of human societies uh, and and that may sound very hopeless uh, in a certain sense. I mean, I think it is sort of the way of the world. Um, and, I, and by the way, I think there are some key differences among them that uh, Islam um, and the particular ethnic conflict in in the Middle East uh, is totalitizing and universalizing um, and focus in a way that you know uh, tribal life was not. On, on for example, among among American Indians, the tribes fought each other. Um, there wasn't this relentless, actually, hatred for the new American tribe that had shown up on the shores. Um, this was very much a way of life uh, that that Americans um, just it was not compatible with American civilization. So in this case, it's much more universal and totalitizing and and relentless in a certain sense um, because it is focused particularly on killing the Jews. Um, in, in the Middle East. So uh, that that's that's kind of my 10,000 foot level in terms of setting this up. But let's I want to transition then to what can or should be done about it. And first, we'll talk about what Israel um, can or should do about it. And then we'll move on to I, I actually want to include in Jeremy's segment, not only American response, but but the West, because I think uh, there's there as we see this this day of rage recording this on um on Friday, right? Um, it was a day of jihad, right? We'll, we'll see what the day brings us, but it's undoubtedly, this is something that's going to affect the domestic uh, tranquility of, of most countries in the West. Um, so in terms of Israel's response, we always hear after, I mean, it really feels like a rewind to the, the, the 2000s. Um, we are now once again engaged in a debate about how much these atrocious acts and the acts of Hamas or Hezbollah um, represent the ambitions of the Palestinian people. Um, and, and we're going to be engaged very shortly, if we have not already been in the last 48 hours, uh, in a discussion about what constitutes an appropriate or constitutional or, or proportional, that's the favorite word, right? Proportional response on the part of the state of Israel. Um, so first of all, proportional response, like I said about the, um, and I think that's why it was a good transition about the the two different levels of civilization. You know, if, if we were to do the biblical eye for an eye response here, um, you know, map out what that would look like, you know, that, that's something the state of Israel will never, would never want to engage in, which is, you know, going in and killing a corresponding number of civilians and, and kidnapping a, a corresponding number of women and raping a corresponding number of women in response. Um, so again, I, I think proportionality here is is the exact wrong problem in terms of what what is I think is likely to happen, and maybe some of of you will uh, have have different ideas about that. I think it's likely that we'll see a, a very heavy bombing campaign, which we already have seen in Gaza. I think already twelve percent of the buildings have been leveled. Um, obviously, Israel has sent in 
uh, repeated uh, notifications to evacuate. It seems like they're pushing people to evacuate uh, towards the Egyptian border. I think trying to put pressure on Egypt to open that border, as Ben pointed out, uh, it, there, there's a very telling um Tell a very telling fact about this. Uh, people call Gaza an open air prison, quote unquote, but they neglect to say that the other half of that quote unquote prison is is a border with Egypt um, that Egypt does not open. Um, and and so when when Israelis put up for uh, a security fence or whatever else to separate themselves from Gaza, which as Ben also said, they have not controlled since the mid two thousands and and their withdrawal. Uh, Egypt is doing the same thing and has been doing the same thing and, and continues to stand by closing that border um, and not allowing people. But they're they're asking people to evacuate to the south. I wonder if that's intended to put pressure um, on on Egypt. Um, and then I, I think they they are going to the, the, the only thing that any state faced with this kind of attack would do. Uh, they have to destroy the capability of, of Hamas to launch these kinds of attacks. Um, and that means, you know, that means destroying the leadership, killing the leadership. It means destroying whatever munitions and and research and development and and military facilities they have. Um, and and unfortunately, because Hamas is Hamas, this means uh, doing heavy fighting in civilian areas because Hamas intentionally places its military assets among civilians and uses civilians as a shield. Uh, and and counts on, in fact, the the reaction not only um, in the broader world watching this, but within Israel itself, uh, sees as weakness the fact that Israel does not want to indiscriminately uh, kill civilians in order to get to Hamas. It is actively telling those civilians to stay in place, uh, not to follow Israeli evacuation orders, um, not to leave, uh, and seeing, saying either it's propaganda or simply directly saying, uh, we need as many of you to die as possible um, in, in order to, it's a tactic of war for us. Um, so in terms of what, what is likely to happen and what should happen, I think Israel has to decapitate the the uh, ability of Hamas to, op to operate um, and bring to justice the people who have done this. I think that will likely, unfortunately, uh, involve enormous loss of civilian life. And I think the moral responsibility for that loss of civilian life falls squarely on Hamas and uh, not only for being the aggressors in this conflict, um, but but also for the specific tactics that they use, making it unable to engage with them as nation state to nation state, right? In the in the the way that the uh, the West conducts war, um, and that's that return. I would turn again to sort of my Comanche analogy. It, it's simply you cannot um, as a nation state like this is not the same thing as a, a normal war with a, a nation state, which, of course, every nation has committed atrocities during war. That's part of what war is. And the fact that we uh, in the West imagine that war can be conducted um, without some of those atrocities is is a, a, a narcissism of of our own incredibly blessed position. Um, but. But that that is part of war and uh, advanced nation states, as we well know, uh, conduct appalling atrocities on each other. But there's still this sort of um, symmetrical. There's a goal. There's one nation trying to impose its will on another, and there's a, a you know there's a fight, and and there's there's an endpoint in mind in terms of of uh, you know one will submit when it's clear that they are not going to win and impose their will on the other. That's not really the shape of this conflict. It's not. It hasn't been the shape of this conflict. And before I turn it over to the rest of the panel to talk about what Israel's response should have been or should be going forward, um, I, I would I would finally say that a note on social media and on the horrific videos that are circulating, uh, in some way, I think this is good uh, to see and to look directly at, at what is going on. Because for so many people in the world, and, and um, all of us lived through the, the sort of debates around this in the early 2000s, um, what was happening was mediated through the BBC or through CNN or through um, you know sort of the, the bias of journalists covering uh, these conflicts. Um, and and uh, now directly because of social media, we can see, and because these people are bragging about the war crimes that they're conducting, they're bragging about executing children, um, they're bragging about terrorizing families and and um, taking women, young women as hostages back to Gaza. So uh, I, I think there is a, an opportunity, at least for a certain amount of moral clarity uh, among people who perhaps either, you know, through being misled by media 
or by their own ideological biases, biases like did not have eyes to see what is actually happening and the shape of this conflict. So with that, we, we still have a few minutes in the segment. Um, and I, I'm curious what you guys think uh, an appropriate, I don't want to say proportionate, actually, an appropriate response from the state of Israel to this attack would be. Well, Inez, I mean, I actually think your Comanche um, analogy is quite interesting for both uh, um, reasons. One, uh, the one that you mentioned about civilizations, which is maybe um, not as intuitive to some people. But I, I do actually think the land piece of this is important. And this is a way that I, I maybe differ a little bit with Ben and even some of the other people who commentate on this, which is without in any way um, minimizing or not being aware of the kind of genocidal rhetoric that uh, takes place in Palestinian schools, underneath the UNWRA, uh, RWA in this case, or anything like this, you know, ultimately, this is a conflict over land and two groups that have uh, claim to land that they feel that they have historical claim to land, they have religious claim to land. And um, I am not um, fond of the Nazi analogies on this, even though these were certainly uh, Nazi level atrocities uh, against civilians, and I don't mean to minimize those in any way. And even as Ben pointed out, they were publicized, which makes them uh, worse in some ways. But uh, I do think that this is a, a territorial struggle in which two groups with uh, you know very different ideas of what the rules of civilized behavior are um, are you know engaged in a, a really brutal struggle. Um, and uh, you know I, I kind of see it as a more normal war in that way um, as much as uh, as the atrocities were unquestionably atrocities. And then I think the other way I, I you know I'd push back a little bit is um, Hamas being clearly uh, responsible, and you can kind of read all the relevant uh, international law and et cetera, uh, you know, for locating its civilian assets where they are. I think if Israel thinks either practically or even legally that they could simply just completely level everything and, you know, kill endless numbers of children with 50% of those folks being children, just because Hamas is um, using those assets in that way and, and locating military assets, I think they're going to find both from a, a moral perspective and more importantly, from a, um, a Hasbara, uh, a public diplomacy type perspective, that it's not going to work out for them uh, in the way that they can, which doesn't mean that they should be proportional necessarily. I would agree with you on that if I were uh, an Israeli strategist, but I do think that um, even with all of the crimes of Hamas being noted, um, the notion that Israel is either practically or theoretically going to be given carte blanche to do what it wants in Gaza uh, would be naive in my view. Um, I kind of want to push back a little bit on this idea of the kind of civilizational or societal conflict. Um, I mean, even within Palestinian culture, you have radically different versions of that based on whether you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel living, you know, within Israel proper, whether you're a Palestinian living in East Jerusalem, whether you're a Palestinian living in Ramallah or a Palestinian living in Gaza. I mean, the, the circumstances of their existence are so different um, that I don't I mean, to think of it as a kind of civilizational conflict, I think really erases that um, and also the fact that so many Gazans are the victims of Hamas and we don't, you know, <laughs> it's very hard to gauge what public opinion is based on the kind of the bad faith of the people gathering it oftentimes. But, you know, obviously within that society, there's two million people and there's going to be a lot of different, you know, there's going to be people who, you know, support what Hamas did. And there's a lot of people who really, really don't. And a lot of people whose ability to make that moral judgment is probably um, confused right now based on the fact that they're homeless or themselves possibly grieving children. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. And the other thing that I want to say, and I, I really do not mean this at all in a victim blaming way, but um, Hamas has been propped up by Netanyahu throughout his reign. He has weakened Abbas and weakened Fatah because it, he believed, like many of us believed, I think, that Hamas was in a weakened state and that bringing some kind of quiet to Israel meant in a way negotiating the powers in that way. Um, you know, the, the, the money coming into Hamas through Qatar was facilitated by the Netanyahu government um, for, for many years. And um, I, I, God forbid, I don't mean to, I don't, I think it's, it's despicable to blame this on Netanyahu, but at the same time to ignore the fact that within Israel itself, 
there was a certain view of Hamas that was wrong. And that complicates the idea of their interests being totally at odds with Israel's, at least from the point of view of the Netanyahu government, you know, during, you know, for for for, for many years over the last two decades. Um, I think it's a little bit more um, complicated than that. And it's important to point that out without, God forbid, suggesting that there's any kind of moral equivalency or anything um, beyond that. Uh, I've kind of talked a bit already about kind of how I see the Israeli perspective and kind of what is to be done now uh, from the rubble. Uh, I would just point out really quickly, well, I'll probably be writing on this. Um, I think that uh, Lee Smith, Tony Badran and Michael Doran have also said some very interesting things about kind of what comes next. So I would not defer to them, but I would refer folks to some of what they've been writing and saying lately for reference. Um, also, just as a factual matter, it is worth noting, and this is not uh, in any way to state that there aren't going to be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people whose lives are going to be upended, who would never want to live under Hamas. But it is worth noting as a factual matter that Hamas was elected into power in Gaza in 2006. There has been polling done, and obviously you have to take every poll with a grain of salt. 2019, there was a survey conducted by uh, the Palestine Center for Public Opinion, which is based in Bethlehem. That polling found that 48% of those in Gaza listed as their top Palestinian national priority during the coming five years, the, quote, regaining of all historical Palestine for the Palestinians from the river to the sea. So I think it's worth noting that it's not as if Hamas doesn't represent some sizable percentage of this population. But that's but uh, then can a, I can I just say no, I'm saying it's gonna be a Travis it's gonna be a huge tragedy for those whose lives are impacted by people who are not representing them, but it is also to say that they do represent a sizable percentage of that population. But I, I'll just say, and I don't, I don't, I don't need to have the last word here. But I'll just say, like the way that you phrase that, that they the retaking of historical Palestine, I know people who do not want to see a hair harmed on the head of a single Jew who would say, yeah, there should be a one state solution and we should all be equal citizens like that is consistent with the phrasing of that. That doesn't mean they support Hamas. I don't I don't need to be there like defenders here. Like there, there's plenty of them there that have genocidal views towards Jews. But that, but specifically that question, I think, does not prove that, although uh, like obviously like a lot of them support Hamas. Right. But um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I I'll, view I'll, from the river to the sea as equivalent to a genocide in Israel. I don't, I, th I don't think we'll be able to bridge or divide over how to interpret that, and that's okay. We can differ. Um, so I, I have pushback of my own about the uh, civilization thing, but I'll save it for final thoughts so uh, we can move to uh, the American implications of this. And uh, if Jeremy, could, you could kick off that discussion. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Inez. Um, so I'd say, first of all, I mean, my headline on it would be they're not the same as Israeli interests. Uh, I've been dismayed uh, that a number of our politicians, as they have often done, have sort of casually equated that. I think it's been a lot of the same sloppy diplomacy in this very moralizing diplomacy that is not serious to me in this region and elsewhere. I don't think this is unique to this conflict, although I think it gets particularly heated in this conflict. Uh, I've said I don't think that we should be too involved frontally, at least. I think there are some things that we should be doing behind the scenes, and I'll talk about those. Um, I'd say our first uh, priority right now is uh, evacuating our citizens. I'm kind of uh, was annoyed that Biden was very late to the game. We've now seen DeSantis uh, kind of step forward in some useful ways. We had a congressman down in Florida kind of personally get involved with rescue. But I think that that, you know, our first responsibility is to our citizens also point out a problematic thing in this. And this is, you know, I don't know how popular this view will be here, but um, as a, an American nationalist, I'm very against dual citizenship. And one of the problems that I think we have here, and it's particularly relevant to the Israeli conflict is we have all these people who are citizens. And ultimately, from a practical perspective, we, you know, we have to treat them as, as citizens. But it's not clear to me how many of these people are living in the US and have their primary, uh, and frankly, in my view, as any citizen should, their only loyalty to the US versus people who are, as again, we have in many areas of the world, citizens on paper, uh, but who are really, uh, you know, essentially living in another country and, and kind of involved in the life of the other country. So I'll just point that out as a side thing. Um, I don't think it ultimately um, in the short term affects, you know, our calculus as far as what we do with our own citizens or hostages. But I think it's it's a problematic nature of dual citizenship 
that I'm not is one of the reasons why I'm not in favor of it. Um, uh, I think we have an interest in simmering down the conflict, um, not having a wider war, uh, whatever that's going to look like. Um, that is, I think, very, very clearly the core American interest here um, that trumps everything else. Uh, we want, uh, for our own selfish reasons, um, Israel, I think, to do whatever it needs to do to decisively um, deter a future attack like this. Uh, that certainly I do, do think at the minimum probably means completely decapitating Hamas's leadership and, uh, you know, it's, it's proxies elsewhere. Um, I just, again, I don't think that from a, um, I'm not saying that because that's a Israeli interest. I think that ultimately that's what will be uh, necessary for the U S interest to be served in calming this down. Um, which is that, that Hamas ultimately has to pay a severe price. But on the other hand, where I, I think I flip is the Israelis might have, even interest in annexing Gaza or doing, you know, a number of other things that I've seen floated out in the media. I don't know that that is in our interests. Um, and certainly I wouldn't want us to see us involved in anything like that. Um, I think you do need rulership. I think one thing that we could be doing very productively behind the scenes is putting a lot of pressure on Qatar uh, to stop harboring Hamas leaders. Uh, again, this is uh, a U.S. interest and just, you know, clearly it's you know, we've learned if we didn't know it already that um, having this type of kind of genocidal and barbarous leadership over any part of the Palestinian people is not in the interests of peace in the region. On the other hand, I don't think you can prop up a puppet government, so I don't know what that looks like, but certainly not allowing uh, Hamas leadership to operate with impunity from Qatar would be an interest of the United States. Um, and then I'd say, uh, you know, we as we've seen this uh, spiral out onto U.S. campuses, et cetera, um, you know, close the border. <laughs> um, you know, this is to me, these are completely uh, related conflicts. And I, you know, keep watching these proxy wars between people who have, uh, you know, really primary interests in uh, in other countries in the United States. And, uh, you know, I've commented on this on Twitter, Inez, I know you you had uh, commented on uh, one of my comments on this as well. Um, you know, uh, I kind of go back to uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the the dangers of having a bunch of squabbling nationalities uh, without sole uh, interest in the U.S. Uh, you know, in our country. So we've we've let a lot of these people, and then even more particularly, we've let in a lot of people who, above and beyond, they're actually having an interest in something, which uh, another country, a primary interest, which is bad enough, you know, are really excusing. Uh, barbarism and genocidal behavior. Uh, and so I think that that is itself, uh, you know, a problem and, and a real reason why we need to focus on our own border and who we're letting into the country, who we're making citizens. Um, uh, I've seen folks like Jack Posobiec say, hey, you know, like we used to deport people. And uh, that's something that we need to be looking at, you know, for people, not because they have political opinion, but if they, you know, if they're, if they're not citizens and they, you know, are extreme enough in sorts of things they're advocating. There's no reason to have them here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, so I think just looking at that broader conflict and kind of understanding um, those needs is uh, what I see as important. But ultimately, I think, you know, our primary uh, interests here are taking care of our own citizens, making sure that we get them to a place that's safe, making sure that we know we make it clear to Hamas or whoever's holding them that uh, if they mess with American citizens, there are going to be real consequences for that, and those consequences are going to be severe. Um, and uh, then beyond that, to make sure that this doesn't turn into a wider war, because we've got a lot of other challenges that we're dealing with geopolitically. I continue to think um, China is uh, you know, our, our most serious geopolitical um, adversary, and we have a lot of things right now, both here and in Ukraine and elsewhere, that are really pulling us away from uh, you know the focus on that, plus the focus on the home front that I think we need. So um, I think I've mentioned this this construct before when we talked about Ukraine, for example, on this show where I've, I've been in the minority, I know, uh, in, in terms of thinking that it is in our interest to, to uh, support Ukraine in this war. I think we are in a real danger of always fighting the last war, right? And while it's important to take lessons from each of, of America's mistakes, uh, it I think it's my role here is to point out, I think there that there's a danger of overcorrection as well, right? We went in to the Gulf War with uh, the Gulf War one with guns a blazing um and 
oh, flattened, right? <laughs> flattened our enemies in that war because we were terrified of of the of the drawn out conflict in Vietnam, um, and still carried the the wounds from that. Um, we went into Iraq the second time thinking it would be like the first time without a, a clear end game and with the completely um, utopian goal of of essentially trying to drag people three or four hundred years. Uh, uh, ahead in civilizational advancement to try to turn them into a, a liberal democracy, which was always fanciful. Um, and, and Americans rightly have a bad taste in their mouths from investing, most importantly, the lives of American servicemen uh, and women for 20 years uh, in the Middle East and having nothing to show for it. But the horrendous way in which we you know, showed the, the world our ass, frankly, uh, in, in withdrawing from Kabul, right? Uh, and so all of that is a legitimate, I think, recentering of American foreign policy on hard-headed interests. But that does not mean that we do not have interests beyond our borders. And I think uh, Ben Dominich actually said it quite well in a debate recently um, with Dan Smith, where he said, the U.S., in my view, does have, and I agree with him here, um, an interest in trying to keep stability in the world, in, in kind of what Jeremy was saying about preventing some of this from spiraling into World War III. And we have an interest in maintaining the reality of a, of a stable world with the United States in charge. And us being in charge doesn't mean that we have to interfere in every conflict in the world or try to teach goat herders how how to you know vote uh, like American citizens. Uh, but it does mean that if we're not in charge, somebody else, some other great power will be. And I think we are moving into an era of of, of uh, multipolarity and great power conflict, um, and that does have to be our our priority. Um, but actually, I don't think I, I think we can overcorrect when we don't recognize that actually the U.S. does have an interest, for example, in maintaining peace on the European continent and maintaining post-1945 borders on the European continent. That is an enormously dangerous situation for the United States um, because we are, in some sense, the, the hegemon of the world. We will inevitably be drawn into these conflicts um, if we do not do it on our terms and in favor of our interests. Um, and similarly here, I think what's required from us is actually relatively small. I, I, I think oftentimes people overestimate how important, for example, U.S. aid is in terms of dollars and tanks um, to Israel, although our, our armory supplies to them are incredibly important because apparently they do run out of ammo and they probably will run out of ammo if we don't supply them in this Um but in terms of like the massive commitments that we've had to make, we have not, and I don't think anyone in Israel is really asking the United States to, you know, make a massive, for example, ground, you know, troop commitment or or some other um, massive interventions. What what the United States really can offer our allies, and they are some of our our best and most consistent allies, at least um, since the 1970s, where before in the Cold War they played both sides a little bit. Um, but at least since the 70s, they're one of our most consistent allies. What they do need from the United States, I think, is diplomatic moral clarity, um, which I have to give to the Biden administration on this. I think their their initial statement was quite strong. I was very uh, surprised. Um, and then cover in the UN. Essentially, I don't think Israel is asking us for help. They're asking us not to interfere. And and it's funny to me that some people who uh, maybe are more skeptical of interventions abroad, their first instinct in this is to say, no, 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 we don't want to be involved. Well, actually, that's kind of what we're being asked to do, except in very minor ways. It's to to not interfere, um, to allow Israel to conduct this operation in whatever way they see fit, and to be their friend, um, and and without you know. Uh, massive like US ground troop commitments and so on and so forth right uh, there is a big there is a big danger that you know I, I think the big wild card and all this and I'm really curious what Ben thinks about this because he knows so much about uh the, the domestic side and the, the foreign policy establishment uh within the Biden government um the big uh danger here is of, of the wider war is is Iran right um Israel at great personal costs and mobilization but probably is not overmatched by Hezbollah and Hamas, although they shouldn't over, uh, they shouldn't, uh, what do you call, underestimate their enemies, um, who have clearly been planning this for a long time. But uh, the the big question for the U.S. I think is Iran and our actions, our foreign policy actions, and our interest towards Iran. Um, I, I think this administration has 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 really, and before them the Obama administration has has really uh, again 
gone with this utopian idea that all people are sort of all cultures and peoples are sort of similar and acting in their self-interests and rational uh and and uh, has have made incredible mistakes just one brief point i know we're running out of segment on, on this segment and all others uh, and i know ben needs to talk but uh i don't want to let this this segment about the west and, and america more broadly slip without saying emphasizing what jeremy said there is I, I really wonder if this will be the turning point for some of these European countries to realize that they have effectively imported a, a totally different civilization um, in, into their borders uh, and and that uh, essentially the Arab street is now in Paris. And um, I wonder how that will affect the elections. I wonder how uh, it'll affect the, the shape of politics, especially with the migrants uh, already migrant crisis building back up to 2017 levels. Uh, in Europe, um, and I, I would note, you know, in in Poland, in Hungary, you're not seeing uh, the same kind of demonstrations, and that's because they simply didn't allow these people in as as migrants, or at least not in nearly as large numbers. Um, Louise Perry on Twitter had a, a great summarization of this, uh, talking about one of the videos of of one of um, the I assume Palestinian women who was in these demonstrations, um, showing pictures of of. Uh, the atrocities and and dead Israelis and dead children, and then you know you know mocking it and saying wow wow you're crying about this and and just positively gleeful about it. Um and and her Louise's tweet was dead on, which is just said you know the question is not why this woman feels this way, but why she's here. Um and I think that that's that's really to the point and well put. Um, so tough for me to address this in a really short period of time. I guess I'll start with quickly what I think the Biden administration will do is I think that the rhetoric put forth is ultimately uh, a front. I think what the Biden administration's interest in doing is, and we see this in the constant uh, hemming and hawing and trying to delink Iran from what its proxy executed, a very complex and sophisticated incursion, even if, even if done with crude tools. Um, I think that their entire interest in this is restraining Israel so that Israel is solely focused on Hamas specifically within Gaza. And the Biden administration's interest is in ensuring that Hezbollah does not lose its dominance over Lebanon. Um, and obviously that the Tehran regime is uh, stable because the thrust policy of the Biden administration, again, has been to make Iran the strong force in the region. To The administration wouldn't even refer to Abraham Accords uh, internally. The uh, so-called Israel-Saudi normalization that the Biden administration supposedly was trying to put forth was, I again, here I, uh, I would refer folks to what Lee Smith and Tony Badran have written on this, I think a way to try to box Israel so that when there was an Iran deal 2.0, uh, it would constrain Israel. So I think it, whatever would be in Iran's national interest without it appearing as if the Biden administration is doing what Iran would want, I believe that that is what will happen. That's a very contrarian perspective. I'm sure it could get a, a ton of pushback, but that's how I see it. Uh, what would an American national interest oriented response look like? I, you know, I largely agree with Jeremy, big picture. Um, and obviously agree that China is by far the number one threat that we face, remains the number one threat we face by getting mired in the Middle East for two decades that redounded directly to communist China's benefit. My kind of three-point plan where we might disagree in the details is obviously first secure our people. Uh, I have not heard the Biden administration doing anything to put pressure on Iran and its proxies, which it should have great friend friendly relations with to put pressure on Hamas to release American hostages, notably. Um, so hostages first, but after that, secure the homeland. And that is first, completely closing our borders. And then second of all, dealing with uh, the mass immigration that we've had in the two plus decades since 9-11, which has created a huge potential population of Islamic supremacists, their sympathizers, and then obviously the Native American population that we see on campuses taking their sides and the elites in some ways are a much bigger force multiplier there. Um, that Those are usually significant problems before we even get to anything else that the U.S. would have to do to protect and preserve its interests. And essentially gives jihadists a potential veto over the West when you have such a massive sympathetic population here that can effectively control our policy and constrain what we might want to do. 
Beyond that, do no harm. And by that, I mean, stop doing anything that supports Iran, its proxies, or their harborers. That also would require a massive, massive reorientation of policy, which I don't see. But I think at a bare minimum, you should not be doing a single thing to benefit those directly or indirectly responsible for killing Americans or taking them hostage. Last but not least, get out of the way and let Israel defend itself as it sees fit. Jeremy, you know, where he and I might differ is he might think that what Israel perceives to be in its self-interest does not correspond with what's in the U.S. self-interest. We could probably have an interesting debate over that. Um, But what is kind of, from my perspective, U.S. getting out of the way mean? It means not restraining Israel in its offensive missions. Um, It also means working together in an intelligence context, uh, which, you know, kind of exists by uh, treaty in terms of the kind of ally alliance that we have, non-NATO ally status that exists, uh, intelligence, sales of munitions and weapon systems. And then I agree with Inez on providing uh, diplomatic cover and support, which to my mind, the, the benefits of that infinitely outweigh the costs. Again, we probably have debates on the specifics of this, but that's kind of my three-point plan. Secure the homeland, do no harm, and get out of the way. And with that, I want to to take it. I think it's a very good transition. Actually, we've been talking about sort of the implications um, of, of the response at home, but um, I, I turn it over to Batya for a discussion about um, rather than all these wider geopolitical uh, consequences and response, which we may disagree about, um, to talk about these attacks themselves and how they're being framed uh, here at home in America. Um, yeah, I do just briefly want to respond to the last point because um, I think that the the wrong lesson to draw would be that um, you know, as somebody who lives in Brooklyn, um, which is a city where there are many, many, many Jews, Orthodox Jews like myself, and many, many, many Muslims, and you know, it would never ever happen that there would be ethnic conflict. I mean, just a very, very um, peaceable, um, you know, multi-ethnic borough. Um, and and the reason for that is um, has to do a lot with class, with with um, the kind of economic stability that these two communities have been able to find and forge um, in this great nation. Um, so just again, coming back to this, I, I think the wrong lesson to draw would be that there's some somehow some kind of like incompatibility between, you know, Muslims, the vast majority in this country, um, you know, abhor what happened um and the goals that we all think are you know the 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 point of a of a you know a western nation state a democracy a liberal society and so forth um maybe you guys don't believe in a liberal society but um probably liberal values like free speech and so forth like we we need to not you know these protests that happen where you had young people get getting together and saying really gross things about what happened like that is a big part of the american experiment right like we believe in free speech the aclu used to believe in defending nazis right to march and um you know it would be a real shame if we gave up on what made us better than them um in response to them um and you know the to me as somebody who's been watching this very closely and the response on the left like uh, those protests you know de- cheering on the 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 you know the hamas atrocities um they're not like the peak of some sort of iceberg. They're not the tip of an iceberg. Like they are the entirety of the iceberg. And I'm glad to have seen it and glad to know that it exists. Um, because um, first of all, on the grounds of free speech, that's what makes this the greatest country on earth. And um, we really shouldn't, um, I think, um, you know, speak in a way about this, even about people that we hate. Um, 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 and, and when we hate what they say in a way that suggests that we don't support their right to say it, um, because, of course, you know, the crucible of free speech is only for people who say atrocious things. Right. It's very easy to protect the free speech of people that we agree with. Um, um, but also, you know, like I said, I think, you know, there it's extremely important to to distinguish between um the 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 extremists on the one hand and not to act like they are representative of more than they are um i think that th- that's really what you're seeing in the in the huge backlash against the squad and against um these universities and i think it's a great thing for universities to be held to task for the ways in which they've inculcated this kind of horrific ex- you know allowed this to spread um so um 
uh, we could probably uh, move on to final thoughts, right? I think I took up my my time responding to that one, but I'll just say my final thought really quickly, and then we can all go around. Which is, uh, um, I was asked during a radio interview yesterday um, if what happened in the south of Israel made me, th- you know, um, how it made me think in terms of like questions of gun ownership. And the host, um, I think very innocently said, you know, um, wouldn't it have been better if all of those Jews were armed and they weren't just sitting there with like, um, without any ability to defend themselves. And um, I didn't really know how to respond in the moment. And that's what I said. I said, I haven't thought about that. Um, I'll think about it and get back to you. But what I've been thinking a lot about is just um, how much heroism there was from those people um in those moments of just utter terror um the the stories coming out the heroic stories coming out of how people save people but also how people died protecting their children um and i would urge people to go um look look up a lot of those stories yeah el bartour has been sharing a lot of them um just unbelievable acts of heroism um and um you know, this really, um, you know, Jeremy mentioned not comparing this to the Nazis, but I think also, you know, I've been talking a lot about the Holocaust because I have a very close friend who's a Holocaust survivor and we've been sort of reading the news together and what it's brought up for her. She's told me stories that she buried for 78 years that have been brought up by this. But in a way, of course, it's not the Holocaust because there's a state and there's an army and there's going to be a response and there's going to be a proportionate response by a moral army. So um, in that sense, I think thinking about that heroism, um, that's what I'm going to be bringing into Shabbat with me this week. Um, so for my final thoughts, I wanted to, and this again, the the structure of the show this time has been very free flowing because these really are all different aspects of, of the same discussion they weave, weave together. Um, but uh, my final thought I think is related to this question and maybe disagreement Um over civilizational conflict. I think no one has been proved more right in uh, in recent decades than Samuel Huntington. I think there is such a thing as civilizational conflict. Um, and that's not the same thing as saying that, like, for example, um, a, an American who's a Muslim cannot be uh, a patriotic American. And on the other side of that, that civilizational conflict in a real way, in the same way that Arab Israelis serving in the IDF are not on uh, the same side as as the you know the savages that did this in in Hamas, right? Um, so it's not to deny the individual capacity of human beings, um, but I I I do think that, uh, and actually this reminds me very much, and it's a good final thought I think uh, to, to to close on um, at least for my part is. There, there's this uh, discussion with George W. Bush uh, that's going around Axios published, right, um, where he's talking about how he sees the, the state of the world. And I was really disappointed to see that he's still clinging to the same notion, this notion that I obviously deeply disagree with uh, about the the idea. And I think I can't remember the exact phrasing during the, the Bush administration that was used, but that the yearning for freedom beats in every human heart or some something flowery to that that effect. And, and the way he described it was exactly about this relationship, this very difficult to confront relationship that, um, you know, Ben and, and Batia were arguing about uh, how much does what Hamas, uh, the goals of Hamas and what they do, how much does it represent the the Palestinian people, right? Um, in in we know that there's no perfect analogy in any country, even a liberal democracy, between what the government does and what the people do. Um, but we still recognize that there's some kind of of tie between them. That these are not wholly unrelated uh, entities. Um, and I think the thing that's very difficult to accept, very difficult for Westerners to accept, and less difficult for Israelis to accept, only because they are forced to confront this day after day, you know, year after year, decade after decade, decade, is that actually there is a civilizational conflict, that there are deep divisions between peoples um, as to to what they value. Uh, and George W. Bush's comments on all of this showed me that he still doesn't understand this, that his administration um, cheered for and pushed for these elections in Gaza that brought Hamas to power um, because they believe that sort of all peoples are, are um, equally uh, both uh, culturally inclined towards and prepared for liberal democracy, um, and and that brought Hamas to power. In in and then similarly in in the U.S. context, 
the bending over backwards uh, that that the Bush administration did to say, oh, we're at war with terror, um, which is a tactic and not uh, not a people, um, not a uh, I, even a concrete ideology, not even a, a sect or an interpretation of a religion, nothing concrete, but a tactic that can be used by any number of, of peoples by for any number of causes. Um, so I. Uh, you know, like I, I guess I actually we do have, and then this is I think important because it's the key disagreement um, in many ways, not only in Israel, where one side of that agreement I think will now triumph due to um, due to the circumstances uh, and the immediate danger, but a very important question for the West at large: um, whether we will believe that we are actually different and better uh, than what human that the natural condition of of human um society tribalism uh you know sort of other other civilizations that doesn't mean that two human lives are not of equal worth but it does mean that that we have to have the self-confidence in ourselves and and that's the the constant self-flagellation um and distraction in the west uh, against this fundamental fact uh i think can no longer survive uh, to a certain extent in Israel. And it's why the left in Israel looks quite different than our left here at home um, because of the contact with reality. But it's it, these remarks from George W. Bush uh, really reminded me that there's a huge part of not only, you know, um, not only sort of uh, migrants in the U.S. who believe this because they've always believed it, um, but of our own homegrown elite that believe um, that there's, it's the same kind of reasoning that leads them to believe that there's a moral equivalency between uh, the crimes of Hitler and Stalin in World War II, respectively, and the fact that the Allies firebombed Dredson. And it's the same, that's the exact same mentality that criticizes Israel for the necessary actions that it must take in Gaza um, as a result of these actions and doesn't recognize the moral clarity of why they're taking those actions. Um, and what they're responding to and the difference in mentality and civilization between uh, the two sides. Jeremy, I don't know if you you have a, a final thought before we wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with you both on with respect to Huntington and Bush broadly. I mean, I think we might uh, differ in, in some contours, but I think, uh, you know, the universalizing nature of American thought uh, and ideology for many, many years has been uh, very, very unhelpful. Uh, in that sense, I'm sort of a Kissingerian realist about a lot of uh, things in diplomacy. Um, I would uh, also agree the um, the, uh, the the very, um, you know, a lot of people said there was sort of a mask off moment that we saw at places like Harvard, where you had these groups all supporting um, Hamas effectively, you know, and people said, oh, my God, what's happening to elites? Um, I, um, I share that. Uh, concern, but my frustration as fundamentally an American nationalist who does not view my primary interests as in this area um, is that it took a war in another country uh, to make that happen. Whereas, uh, in my view, American elites have been making clear their hatred for the American people and our traditional values, culture, and way of life for decades now. And so I resent that it, you know, it has to be something in some other country that will wake up. Um, a lot of people um, to uh, to that reality. And so I think that's unfortunate. And then I think I'd probably finally close again with a little bit of hard-headed realism, which is the moral dimensions of this conflict being fully uh, acknowledged. And, and I think I'm not in entire agreement with, with some of my other panelists, but I think I'm largely in agreement with them. Um, you know, that's not my primary thing. There's immoral, terrible things that happen uh, all over the world. Uh, Armenians were ethnically cleansed in Nagorno-Karabakh like a couple weeks ago, and um, nobody even cared. It wasn't even a one-day story. Uh, you know, this was also a very long-seated thing. So I think the real question is uh, not whether um, Hamas did something horrible in Israel, which they did, and the Israelis will handle that in whatever way they think uh, serves their national interests, uh, but for us to keep in mind, um, you know, our very real interests in the conflict in the world, our domestic problems at home, and to keep that very hard-headed realist um, uh, kind of approach in mind in whatever we decide to do or not do in this region. Um, 
Yeah, just to to wrap up this segment, uh, Ben Weingarten uh, had to drop off to do another another media hit, but uh, he is asking for our listeners to refer to his Twitter, where um, he has has put his final thoughts there. Um, just just uh, to put a final point on this, um, there there is this very strange and and the, the mask off moment you referred to, Jeremy. There is this very strange confluence um, that I don't think we can ignore uh, between and sort of allyship between. The, the domestic, what we would call here on NatCon squad, are, are domestic opponents verging on enemies uh, who simply hate traditional America um, and, and traditional Americans. Uh, and this this uh, sort of um, largely, uh, largely imported, right, sentiments that are, are much, in some ways, much deeper, much uh, more, more directly ethnic from some of these, like, for example, Palestinian studies professors or whatever, uh, but they they actually go together very well in this. Even though logically you would think that uh, you know people who support LGBTQ right and transing the kids uh, not a natural allies of Hamas, but in fact uh, they they seem to uh, they seem to to swim in the same coalition very well. And in fact, uh, you know it's it's very it's, it's very interesting to watch people clothe these like very deep uh, and very like lizard brain ethnic hatreds and tribal hatreds in the language of social justice, of decolonization, of, um, you know, playing all of the the sort of harp strings of the American left uh, as, as it exists today and of the American elites as they exist today. So I don't think these are wholly separate uh, enemies. But um, on, on behalf of Jeremy, Ben, Ban, Batia, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ines Steppen. We'll see you at the next NACON Squad.